Father God, I just want to just thank you, Lord, and come before you now as we start to read your word, Lord. I pray, God, that you would just empty anything of me. I'm just a broken vessel that just wants to be used. Lord, I pray anything that I say that comes out of my mouth that's not of your word, I pray, Lord, that it will fall on deaf ears. Thank you, Lord, for this time. And be with us now as we read your word in Jesus' name. (laughs) Well, we're in Acts, the book of Acts. So ladies from Ohio, um, we are in the book of Acts this season. And um, if you would join with me and open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. Uh, The theme of the book of Acts is noted in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. If you have a highlighter available, let's highlight that. Or you can write in your book. And Acts 1, verse 8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This verse is clearly stating that the Holy Spirit has not yet come upon them. But up until now, the disciples only had the Holy Spirit come alongside them. And they've only had the Holy Spirit to dwell with them. They're about to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here we find in chapter 1. And what kind of power do we see? Is it personal power of godly living? No, this is a power of a new task that Jesus is asking them to preach the gospel message to, to the end of the earth. Now, how many of you have traced your roots back on the little... <laughs> You're waving your truth. Anyone else? Anyone has got you traced your roots back? Um, did you find anything interesting in that? Yeah? And you found anything interesting? Yeah? Um, Well, I've traced mine back far enough to know that one side of my family was from the south, and one side of my family was from the north. And clashing with their beliefs and discrimination, we too are going to see just how our roots as a church started back up to the resurrection. That's our church, ladies. Our church started with Jesus Christ and the resurrection. So our roots, when someone says, what church are you from? I don't say Calvary Chapel Running Springs, the church of Jesus Christ. That's my roots where the resurrection has started. You hold in your hands and your laps the story of your brothers and sisters who started all of this, especially here in chapter 1, how the church is to look. As they started our church, we sit here with the same power of the Holy Spirit to continue on preaching God's message to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts records the beginning of the church, the birth of the church. This morning we will take a look at the power of God's great love, the cross, the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, the resurrection, the promise of the Holy Spirit, We're going to see Jesus ascends to heaven. We're going to see the first prayer meeting. And we're going to see the first business meeting. 
Many times we think of the church as a building. We drive by, oh, there's a building, that's a church. You go over to the deep south, there's a church on every single corner. It's called the Bible Belt. But we, really, the church is us, people, many different kinds of people who believe in Jesus. That's you, that's me. And so let's take a look at what was happening at the time Luke was writing Acts. We found out last week from Sandy, Rome was in power. Jesus was crucified and risen. And now he has been with them for 40 days. So despite the persecution that came immediately As they continued together, God added more and more people to the church, and they believed in Jesus. One of the greatest examples we learn from the Gospels is how Jesus was always in prayer with his Father. Communicating daily with our Heavenly Father keeps our spirits afresh. We just sang about that. Belinda asked, awaken us, afresh us, alive. It keeps us active Staying in tune with the Holy Spirit, which leads, guides, and directs our lives. And having the same example here in Acts chapter 1, we also see that this is what a church is supposed to look like. If the church is making anything else other than Jesus Christ's gospel more important, then we need to be careful on where we go. The guidelines here in the book of Acts helps us to know we are in the kind of church that Jesus set up himself and wants you and me to be in. The book of Acts continues with God among us. Luke, the writer of Acts, continues in his narration with maybe hardly a break, a pause maybe perhaps to dip his ink in the inkwell. But Luke came from one of the ethnically mixed Greek-speaking cities of Rome's empire. The gospel are the story the gospels are the story of only the beginning of the work of Jesus Christ. When you come to the end of the gospels in John, you have come not to the end nor to the beginning, but to the end of the beginning. And the book of Acts is all about the account of the way the Holy Spirit comes into the church, continued with Jesus Christ, and it began. The Holy Spirit now begins to fulfill the designed program of God. He begins to carry on his work through the reincarnated body of Jesus Christ, the church, the body of believers, by which the Lord intends to reach out to the utmost parts of the earth. That work began 2,000 years ago. And as you can see, he is still here today, and he's still doing it today. We are living now in the age of the Spirit, which was inaugurated by the day of Pentecost. And we're going to find out more about that next week in chapter 2. The first major event of the book of Acts we will look at next week, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus Christ is still in control, or is he not? He is, but his location has just changed. It was from earth, and now it's in heaven. He's now sitting at the right hand of God, giving the disciples instructions through the Holy Spirit. 
As the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit acts as the divine source who creates, sustains, and purifies to all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. We will discover he, the Holy Spirit, is not merely an influence or power emanating from God. Rather, he is God. He functions with purpose, emotion, and will. He can be grieved. He can be quenched. He can be resisted. He can be tested. He can be blasphemed. And he, sadly, a lot of times can be forgotten. But he loves his saints. That's you. That's me. He's teaching us, guiding us, comforting us, correcting us, and blessing us as he did the early church. The Holy Spirit, he convicts. He lets us know when we are doing or saying something we shouldn't be saying. Maybe, he la- maybe we lashed out at someone or about someone. And he gives that little tap on the shoulder. Really? Did you have to say that? He converts us, showing us we need Jesus in our life. He indwells us, illuminating our understanding and application of God's word so we can resist the enemy on a day-by-day basis. Anyone need that help on a day-by-day basis? I know I do. He fills us with his spirit. He empowers us with our speech to be bold in proclaiming Jesus Christ. He enlightens our minds to apply God's word to our life. He strengthens us to fight those spiritual battles. He encourages. He blesses. He's our sanctifier. He is our helper, our fulfiller, our comforter. He enables. He sustains. He is our prayer partner. He intercedes on our behalf, on your behalf. When we are in times of suffering, grief, and pain, how many of you want a prayer partner like that to sit next to God the Father and say, that's my child? The witness of the Holy Spirit that is in us that helps us to know that we know that we know. The question is, do you know? Do you know? Do you know this morning? Do you know that the Holy Spirit lives in you? Do you feel him? Christ your Savior rescued you from a destination that's not even worth talking about. When you are feeling attacked, you need the strength and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to kick the enemy out, to kick him out of your house, to kick him out of your marriage, to kick him and leave your children alone, and he's certainly to kick him out of this church, his church. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave, you, me, us, we have inside of us. Do you feel that Holy Spirit? He is here. He lives in you. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure if he lives inside of you, then come afterwards and I want to pray with you. Jesus Christ wants to live inside you. And he wants to be the king of your heart, your life and your marriage and your family and your home. Ladies, you need to know that you know that you know that you know that Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, lives inside you. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in us. The question is, does the Holy Spirit have you this morning? Now, that's a very personal question that I threw out there. And only you know that from the bottom of your heart that can answer that. Does he have every part of your life? Now, let's read in our books in chapter 1. Let's open our books. I'm I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Some of you have different translations. 
Let's read chapters 1 through 11. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time. And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Now, some of your versions have the word infallible proofs, which means absolutely trustworthy, unfailing in its certainty. Verse 4, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven. But someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Now, let's take a real quick look at the first few verses. And let's all decide together on who Luke is. So verse 1, Luke says, In my former book, Theopolis, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So what was that first book? We all know that it was... What do we know it was? Luke. So let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Just go a few pages to the left. I will read verses 1 through 3. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you. Most honorable Theopolis, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Okay, so here Luke is not the first to write a narrative of the ministry of Jesus. And he also gave his narrative a basic structure. He says that um, he's writing. Hold on a second. Okay. He's telling them that the eyewitnesses who delivered the news to us. So Luke is making it clear that he was not an eyewitness to the events of Jesus' ministry. But that he had access to the statements of those who were. He also said it seemed good to me also. Luke does not express dissatisfaction with previous narratives. But he identified with those who went before him. 
Having had perfect understanding, Luke investigated his findings and did he did it with precise care. And of all things, Luke's work is thorough. From the very beginning, his interest of the earliest events tied to Jesus' life. So basically we have here Luke is saying he has followed the news about Jesus from the beginning. At one time, the book of Luke and the book of Acts were joined together as one book with two volumes. We really don't know all that much about Luke from the New Testament, but we do know that he was a physician. We find that in Colossians. He was a Gentile. His name proves that. And he was a devoted companion of Paul. And we're going to find that from the text of Acts, Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy. Now, the, the name Theophilus, this man might have been a Christian wanting instruction. He might have been a Roman official being briefed by Luke about the history of the Christian movement. Or the name could be symbolic because that name Theophilus means God lover. And so in the introduction to the first volume, Luke addresses Theophilus with the title Most Excellent, which was a very... Um, a way to address people who were in high office at that time. And so Luke arrived in Jerusalem with Paul in Acts 21, and he left him again on his journey to Rome in Acts 27. So in those two years, Luke had plenty of time to research and write his gospel and the book of Acts. Both books were written around 30-60 A.D., Moving on to verses 3 and 5, we're going to look at the 40 days. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convicting, infallible proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So Jesus spent 40 days teaching his disciples. But this time, the light bulb probably goes on more. Have you ever been told something over and over and over and over and then you're told one more time and you're just, what? And then you're told one more time and then the light bulb goes on. So this is kind of what happened with the disciples. The light bulb finally goes on. But before the resurrection, they had argued with each other and had deserted their Lord. One of them, Peter, what did he do? He denied Jesus three times. We do know that John the disciple was the only one mentioned who stayed with Jesus the whole time during the crucifixion. Here during the 40 days, a series of meetings with the living resurrected Christ. The disciples had many questions answered. They became convinced about the resurrection, learned more about the kingdom of God. I like to think at this point, but this time that the disciples had with Jesus, these 40 days, were kind of like the after-school program. Jesus saying, okay, you got 40 days, you really need to pay attention, and you really need to get this right. So consider the change the resurrection made in the disciples' lives. At Jesus' death, they had scattered, were disillusioned, and feared for their lives. But after the resurrected Christ, they became fearless and risked everything to spread the good news. Their, toast, their testimony now became even more infallible. We need to ask ourselves this question, ladies. Are we fearless in our speech of Jesus? 
Or are we fearless around those we are hanging out with who are already Christians? Why is it we become so silent? Maybe we slip inside the background when we are around people that are obviously not Christian followers. Why is it that we become not fearless for him? Did their fearless happen right away? Of course not. They faced imprisonment, beatings, rejection, and even being martyred. Verse 4 tells us, Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you to sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is telling his disciples that something is going to happen to them, but first they need to wait. One of the hardest things for us humans is to wait, especially us women. We hate waiting. We want things now. I would rather be at a dentist than have to wait to hear an answer. I especially don't like it when my kids call me on the phone and say, I have something to tell you, but I'll tell you when I get home. No, that's not going to work. I need to know now. But nothing good happens when we are in that state of waiting. We get impatient. We tend to get ahead of God's plan. And our minds start to wander. And they go crazy and we think the worst. In those three days after the resurrection, the disciples must have had many thoughts going through their heads. Thoughts of doubt. Thoughts of now what? God has important work for us to do for him, but first we have to wait. We have to wait for the Holy Spirit. We often sometimes want to get ahead of God by not wanting to wait on his plans, but that's what God wants us to do. Are you waiting and listening this morning for God's complete instructions, or are you running ahead of his plans for you? We need God's timing and the power to be truly effective. The apostles are to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Until that event takes place, his command is to wait. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. Jesus, at this point, had nothing else for the disciples to do other than to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. Jesus knew that they really could do nothing effective for the kingdom until the Spirit came. To wait means that it's worth waiting for. To wait means that they had a promise and it would come. To wait means they must receive it. They couldn't create it themselves. To wait means that they would be tested while they're waiting. Waiting puts us in a state of be still and know that I am God. The longer we stay in our trial is because in most cases, ladies, and I know for myself, we are being disobedient and we are not waiting. It is significant that this coming, filling, and empowering of the Holy Spirit is called the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father now becomes the promise of the Son. The Holy Spirit comes to us in a package deal. Repent, be baptized, sins are forgiven, receive the Holy Spirit. We can't live without it. It's a part of Christ living in us. This confirms the divine promise and encourages us to depend upon it. That we have heard it from Christ, for in him all the promises of God are yea and amen. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that's when God empowers us to do the ministry he called us to do. Without it, we are doing it all on our own strength. 
And a hundred times out of a hundred, we fail. We will mess it up. When Jesus got baptized, that is when the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove, signifying Jesus' earthly ministry, everything before it was preparation. In the case of the disciples with Jesus, everything they did before the ascension was their training, like hands-on training with your supervisor. So question, the disciples have the Holy Spirit power prior to becoming baptized with the Holy Spirit here in chapter Acts chapter 2. Remember, Jesus sent them out two by two, and they did healings in Mark 6. Matthew 4.19, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So the answer is yes. There's three ways the Holy Spirit comes to us. He convicts us. We are sinners, and the Holy Spirit convicts us, and we accept Jesus. He converts us, and we become baptized. And then he indwells. In us, He lives within us, pouring out of us to do his ministry. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is what the disciples are told to wait for. Yes, they were convicted because Jesus said, follow me, and they followed. So yes, yes, they got converted because they were with Jesus. And probably most likely they got baptized along with him. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but most likely they did. Now they're going to have the Spirit's going to indwell in them. And when the Spirit indwells you, it pours out of you. It's when we seek out to help further God's kingdom. The desire inside of us wants to reach out, help, doing a ministry. It's now indwelling and overflowing out of us. I can remember one time when Mario and I started our couples ministry about five years ago. We were finding ourselves the last couples to leave the church on Wednesday night and Sunday. And we were looking around just waiting to find fellowship. And I remember coming to Jeff and saying, we need to get a couple's ministry started here. And he said, yes, do it. And so that was our baptism of the Holy Spirit, just wanting to just do and overflow and sink it in and just become just more doing his ministry. Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. That's the convicting. Jesus breathed on them the Holy Spirit. That's the converting. And dwells within will be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, the disciples have one last question before Jesus leaves. Now, at this time, Jesus knows that the question that they are about to ask, they kept asking through all the three years that they've been with him. And we all know that question was, Lord, when will you restore the kingdom to the Jews at this time? Will you do it now? Will you do it today? It's important for us to remember the apostles were brought up and schooled in the Old Testament. They had waited for the coming of the Messiah. They understood that the Messiah is the one who will establish the kingdom upon this earth. That was their hope. In their traditional view, the Messiah would be an earthly conqueror who would free Israel from Rome. Yes, they are thinking natural, but we know that Jesus' kingdom is spiritual. And so they continually wondered about his kingdom. When would it come? What would be their role? How often do we sometimes get caught up thinking, when's the rapture going to happen? What am I going to do in heaven? And for myself, I just want to be on the biggest worship team ever. Because I love worship, but I can't sing worth beans. And I keep asking, hey, you know, I want to sing. And just, you know. 
So, but, so they were earnest in their asking. That which the Lord never had directed or encouraged them to seek was the when. Instead, Jesus tells them, this subject is not up for discussion, not now and not ever. It is not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has set by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Now, how many times do we read about the people posting on the news and saying, the world's going to end on July, whatever. Yes, we are to be vigilant, but not get caught up on the exact time. That's God's role. We know that all the prophecies have been fulfilled for the return of Jesus, but we don't know when God is going to say now. In verse 9, after he had said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. This is so important, ladies, that the disciples needed to see Jesus go up. The disciples knew at this point that he was God and his home was in heaven. They knew that they knew that they knew. They were eyewitnesses. They were infallible. The two men dressed in white were angels who proclaimed that Jesus will one day return the way he went up. He left physically, and he will come in like manner. He left visibly, and he will so come in like manner. He left from the Mount of Olives, and he will so in like manner. He left in the presence of his disciples, and he will so come in like manner. He left blessing his church, and he will so come in like manner. The cloud is as suggestive as the cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory that we read about in the Old Testament. And you will be witnesses, not maybe, not if you feel like it. Jesus is stating a fact here. We can only be used of God and become witnesses of Jesus when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's his job. The power we receive as believers from the Holy Spirit includes courage, boldness, confidence, insight, ability, and authority. Verse 8, And you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why do you ladies think that Jesus specifically told him Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria? Has anyone dug deep into that one? Jerusalem Jerusalem was where he was executed by an angry mob of Jews. Judea, the Jews rejected his ministry. And Samaria was regarded a wasteland of impure half-breeds. Remember, no one wanted to go through Samaria. Those who intermarried against the Jewish law. The Gentiles were seen by some Jews of that day as nothing better than fuel for hell's fire. Can you imagine the discrimination? Nope, you don't get to go to heaven. You speak Australian. (laughs) That's how bad it was and worse. Yes, Jesus wants a witness sent to all of these places and the Holy Spirit would empower them to do this. I thought of this doing my study and I came to a conclusion. Maybe it was a way of Jesus to say to these three cities, You hated me, but I love you. You rejected me, but I love you. 
No one wants to be with you. But I do. I love you. We all sitting here today have the same calling as the disciples to go and spread the word of the gospel. So this morning, what does your Jerusalem look like? What does your Judea, what does your Samaria look like? It looks the same now as it did then. Jerusalem are those who hate you, maybe your family, your friends. Your Judea are those who reject you, co-workers, in-laws, family. Samaria, those are the places that you don't want to go. You don't want to go down that street. You don't want to go down to that corner because you know that same person is going to be sitting there with that same sign. It's easy to talk Christians with our friends, but Jesus is asking us, you, me, to go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria. Continue on in our reading. Verses 12 through 26, the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Judas had bought a field with money he received for his treachery. Falling head first there, his body split open, spilling out all his intestines. The news of his death spread to all people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name al which means field of blood. Peter continued, this was written in the book of Psalms, where it says, Let his home become desolate with no one living in it. He, it also says, let... Someone else take his position. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas. From among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they all prayed. O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry. For he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then he cast lots. They cast lots. And Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other eleven. After Christ was taken up into heaven, the disciples immediately returned to Jerusalem and had a prayer meeting. So they waited and prayed. Here we see the obedience and the unity between God's people. Prior to the resurrection, we know the disciples did nothing but argue and bicker with one another, even most likely taking sides with each other, causing division among the church. Their differences were still there, but the resurrected Jesus in their hearts was greater than their differences. It is so important when we come together as a body of believers to leave our differences outside the walls. Yes, we all do things different, 
But your way is not better than her way. And her way is not better than your way. And your way is not better than my way. It's just different. When you face a difficult task, an important decision, or baffling dilemma, don't rush into the work and just hope it comes out right. Instead, make your first step prayer for the Holy Spirit's power and guidance. Among one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is that of a revealer of truth, guiding, going before, leading the way, removing obstructions, opening the understanding, and making all things plain and clear. All things plain and clear. When we get to the point in our life of trusting God and His plans, knowing that His ways are better than our ways, when we come to accept this, we can breathe a lot easier. Sometimes it's very hard to understand his plans when they go against the grain. It's easier for us to tell someone, it's okay. God's plan for you is going to be revealed at the end of your trial. But when it's us going through that trial, we don't want to hear anything that will bring our own personal trial easiness. We can't fix other people's trials, nor do we know what the solution is. That's God's job, not mine and it's not yours. Our job is to pray with them for God to show clarity and direction. Jesus never told us we would not have trials, but he did say in James, count it all joy. When you go through trials, when troubles come your way, consider an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So putting aside our differences. Here we see the first church business meeting as well. The small group of 11 has now grown to more than 120. The main order of business was to appoint the new disciple, or apostle, as the 12 are now called, while they waited for the promise. They were doing what they could, praying, seeking God's guidance, and getting organized. The apostles wanted to choose a replacement for Judas Iscariot. They outlined specific criteria for making the choice. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. This was the main job of the disciple that would replace him. Now that Jesus has ascended to heaven, it was more important than ever to have a witness of his resurrection. The great thing the apostles were to attest to the world was Christ's resurrection. For that was the great proof of his being the Messiah and the foundation of our hope in him. The apostles were ordained not to worldly dignity or dominion, but to preach Christ and the power of his resurrection. An appeal was made to God, Thou, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, which we do not, and better than they do their own. It is fit that God should choose his own servants, letting him guide us through the Holy Spirit. We also see here that Peter takes the leading role of the apostles. Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Here Peter took a natural leadership role among the disciples. There was nothing wrong with seeing Peter as the leader of the first group of the apostles, even as he often was the spokesman among the disciples during the earthly ministry of Jesus. Peter's words show wisdom we did not often see in him earlier. He began by noting that Judas didn't spoil God's plan, but he fulfilled God's plan. The scripture had to be fulfilled. 
This is something that only wise and mature disciples can see in the aftermath of evil. This was a notable way of doing what Jesus would do. We remember that when Jesus chose his disciples, he prayed. The disciples following Jesus prayed for wisdom to know who the Lord would add to their number. Maybe this is where we get the word WWJD, what would Jesus do? Pray. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus' brother were now with them in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit. During Jesus' lifetime, they had not believed he was the Messiah. But the resurrection must have convinced them. Jesus' special appearance to James' brother may have been especially significant. In our last verse, they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, so that he was added to the eleven apostles. And this is where the disciples were changed to apostles. Disciple meaning follower or learner. Apostle means messenger. Now here is some deep thought. There are a few commentaries that say this appointing of the twelfth apostle was not really the leading of the Holy Spirit, nor that it was God's choice leading in the casting. There's nothing else mentioned in the Bible about Matthias. It is of the assumption that Paul was the chosen twelfth apostle, disciple for Jesus Christ. But you can go home and search the scriptures and always ask the Holy Spirit to open up your mind and your understanding. So in closing, let's stay in prayer. Let's wait on the Lord. Let's watch for God to speak to you through his words. Walk worthy of your calling, not someone else's. Witness for Christ wherever he takes you. Is he going to take you to Jerusalem today? Is he going to take you to Judea? Or is he going to take you to Samaria? Remember, every day is a divine appointment from God. If you ask the Holy Spirit for it first. Let's pray. Father God, we're just so thankful, Lord. As we begin our study, Lord, in learning more about the Holy Spirit, Lord, just to have them baptize us afresh, Lord, to indwell, to over, over pour out of us, Lord, overflow. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we have together. We ask, Lord, that you will be in all each of the groups this morning, Lord, with the ladies. We thank you for all your many blessings, Lord. We ask, Lord, for boldness and courage and strength and empowerment. Lord, show us individually who our Jerusalem and our Judea and our Samaria are. And it's only through you, Lord, living inside of us that we can do your work for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.